turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10. To be a disciple of Jesus, we define it, if you will, as one who joyfully follows Jesus and helps others do the same. It might be more boiled down to someone who simply learns from Jesus and obeys him. A disciple is a learner. Someone who tags along, if you will, behind someone else to learn from them and then do what they do. A disciple is one who learns from Jesus and obeys Jesus, learns from Jesus and puts his words into action in their life. How you doing? How am I doing? If you were with us last week in Nehemiah chapter 9, we saw Ezra leading the people of Israel, this remnant that had returned from Babylonian captivity under the Persian Empire, the Persian King Cyrus had let them return, and this remnant did. We've seen earlier in Nehemiah that they rebuilt the walls around the city, and in these last several chapters, we are seeing Nehemiah, along with Ezra, reforming the people. In chapter 9, chapter 8, they began to reform themselves according to the Word of God, and in chapter 9 that we looked at through prayer. And if you'll remember the prayer last week, you, 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 but they, or but we, but you. He was overwhelmed at the incredible grace of God that had created the nation of Israel, redeemed the nation out of Egypt, led the nation through the wilderness, But over and over and over again, the people had failed God. They had fallen short of his glory. They had turned away from him into sin and rebellion. But God, in his compassion, did not forsake them, but forgave them. And we saw the key word over and over and over and over and over and over again six times. God was compassionate to them, all in response to their sin. If you were here, I said, you know, I've never used this word as a point in my sermon, but I used it last week that we are to be flabbergasted at the compassion of our God. But we ended last week saying this focus on the grace of God the sinfulness of the people, but then the superabounding compassion of God did not lead them to sin. It did not lead them to say, oh my goodness, God is full of grace. Even when we sin, he responds with overwhelming compassion. Therefore, let's continue to sin. No, They finished their prayer last week in chapter 9, verse 37, and then in verse 38. Now, because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing, and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, 
and our priests. They put a document together. They made an agreement. And just to jump ahead, the agreement there in verse 29, we are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. I think the first point this morning as I consider chapter 10 is that grace inspires obedience. Again, that prayer of chapter 9, so focused on the grace of God, so focused on the compassion of God in response to the sins of the people, did not lead them to say, therefore, we will continue in our sin and rebellion against our God because it superabounds his compassion towards us. Not at all. The grace of God does not lead to sin. The fancy word for it within theology is antinomianism. Nomos means law. Antinomianism is against law. It says that because and since I'm forgiven in Jesus Christ by faith alone, apart from works, hey, I can live however I want to live, and God is bound to forgive me. I'm anti-keeping God's word because I'm free to live as I wish under the grace and compassion of God towards sinners. You don't have to turn there. Here's another fancy word. We find it in the, the book of Jude, the last book right before the book of Revelation. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They turn the grace of God into license, licentiousness. I'm free to do whatever I want to do because of the grace of God. And the Bible screams at that and says, no. In fact, in Romans chapter 6, after, if you will, glorifying the grace of God in the face of sin, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? The Apostle Paul says, may it never be. Grace, the kindness of God, the mercy of God, the continual compassion of God to forgive us and never forsake us is never meant to lead us to say, therefore, We can live however we want. No, just like these 
Israelites of old, grace inspires obedience. In theology, we talk about justification and sanctification, right? Justification is when by the grace of God you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he declares you righteous. He forgives all of your sin. He takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and imputes it to your account. So it's as if your sins are gone and the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to you. It's not as if, that, that's it. And you are declared righteous by God. You're accepted by him and loved by him. And oh, may God drive that truth into your heart and mine ever, ever deeper. That through faith in Jesus Christ alone, we are forgiven, we are declared righteous, we are loved by him, we are accepted by him, and we're safe. And then sanctification is that process whereby God makes us more and more like his son Jesus in our daily practical lives. Justification is a one-time event. Sanctification is a process that, that takes place throughout life. They are separate. But one leads to the other. The grace of God through Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God to forgive us, leads through the power of God's Spirit to a life of growing obedience to Jesus. And we see here, they make an agreement in writing. Verse 29, again, I'm not so sure what to make of this curse that they're calling down upon themselves, this oath to walk in God's law. All I want to say is this. We all know that resolutions die so quickly, do they not? I mean, you and I make resolutions on January 1st, and they're gone by January 2nd. They're going to make resolutions here in chapter 10, and it won't be long before we see in chapter 13 that they are falling short. But should we not resolve to obey Jesus? I know when we get to 13, we're going to see that they're falling short of what they resolved, but I don't see anything in chapter 10 that leads me to go, don't do this. Don't, don't resolve to obey God. Don't, don't say, God, by your grace and your strength, I'm, I, I want to obey Jerry Bridges wrote a book years ago called The Discipline of Grace. Here's one little sentence in it. If we ourselves hope to make any progress in the pursuit of holiness, commitment is absolutely necessary. I think his point in the chapter was that so often we as followers of Jesus fail to resolve to obey him, to make a commitment 
to obey Jesus Christ. And listen, I know we cannot do anything in the power of our flesh. I got two hands in the air. I know I can't. But, oh, God, with the strength that you provide by your, the power of your spirit, would you help me to obey you in this area of my life? Lord, I want to obey you. Right? We've, we've talked about aptat before. Whenever there's a sin, a temptation that you or I are trying to avoid, or maybe there's a, 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 a Christian duty that you and I are seeking to pursue, Practically, how do you do it? You admit, A, you admit that you can't do it in your own strength. P, you pray, oh, Lord, would you help me say no to that temptation or yes to that which you're calling me to do? Trust, Lord, I'm going to trust your word and trust that you are at work in my life. A, you act. You resist the temptation. You do what it is that God's calling you to do. And, and when it's over, T, you thank him for the grace and the mercy and the strength that he gave to obey. I know that resolutions die quickly. I know. But there's something about them that say, we want to obey God that I think is commendable. There in verse 1, now on the sealed document were the names. There's Nehemiah the governor. And then it looks like a number of priests there at the end of verse 8. These were the priests. In verse 9, the Levites. In verse 14, the leaders. Verse 28, now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. I can't remember if I said it. I'm not so sure what to make of the curse, only to say they are serious about this. Which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all his commandments of God our Lord, his ordinances and his statutes. And that we will not give our daughters, they get specific now, Verse 29 was general. They get specific. That we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. I see three ways maybe that they're seeking to specifically obey the Lord. Here's how I see it. See if you agree. Number one, I think they are seeking to value God's way seeking to value God's way. And in particular here, they are recommitting themselves not to give their daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. This was an old command that God had given to Israel whenever they had wandered in the, in the wilderness and they were about to enter into the land, cross the Jordan, enter into the land and take it. God had told them in Deuteronomy chapter 7, do not intermarry with the Canaanites lest it will turn your hearts away into the worship of their idols and into sin. So, in order to value God's way, they are recommitting themselves to this 
kind of obedience. And I think for us, it certainly means if you are single out there, young folks, don't marry an unbeliever. As a follower of Jesus Christ, do not marry someone who does not love and follow Jesus Christ. Apart from the decision to make Jesus your Lord, the second biggest decision you may well ever make is who you're going to marry and what you're going to live for, your master, your mate, and your mission. And whenever a Christian marries a non-Christian, you are disagreeing with your spouse on the most fundamental and important issues of all of life. And so I would say to those of you who are single, young, to marry a believer, someone who loves and follows Jesus Christ just like you, but I would say to the rest of us as well, it seems to me the reason they are doing this is they don't want to be affected by what the intermarriage might bring. It would turn their hearts away from the Lord, and so should we not all be careful of those things that could carry our hearts away? You and I need to be careful with maybe the friends that we choose. The Apostle Paul says, bad company corrupts good morals. And I'm not telling you don't be friends with unbelievers. I want you to be friends with thousands of unbelievers. I want you to know hundreds of unbelievers, as many as you can know, as many as you can love, as many as you can encourage. Be friends. But be careful of the friendships made up of bad company that can corrupt good morals, if you know what I mean. I wonder about the shows that we watch. We have so many shows available to us now, right? Everywhere we go, whether it's on our phone, our computer, or we got... I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to remember that when there's just like six or seven TV stations on. When I was a kid, there was Channel 4, 8, 11, and a couple more, you know, up in the 20s or something like that. Now there's just hundreds of them. And so they can suck our time away if we don't watch out. And obviously, so much of this TV and movies and shows that are available, the content is questionable. We've got to be careful. The books that we read, the magazines, the blogs, the influencers we might follow on social media and the like. They valued God's way. They, they, they wanted to walk in God's way. They knew that if, if, if we intermarry with with the foreigners in the land, or if we let our daughters marry, it's going to turn our, our hearts away from the Lord and His ways, and so let's be careful about that. Value God's way. Verse 31, As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day, and we will forego the crops the seventh year in the exaction of every debt. Value the Lord's way 
maybe prioritize the Lord's day? Apparently, they had not been keeping the Sabbath as they should. And of course, Israel was under God's law that the seventh day, Saturday, was to be kept holy. And even they had the seventh year and even the, the sabbatical or the years of Jubilee after seven cycles of seven years, after 49 years, there was the year of Jubilee. They were under God's law to keep the Sabbath holy. You know, it's the only one of the Ten Commandments that's not reiterated in the New Testament. There's lots of debate as to whether or not Christians now are under the law of Christ to keep Sunday as a holy day. And if so, what that might look like in the life of a believer. We do know that the early church moved the day of worship from the seventh day of the week, Saturday, to the first day of the week, Sunday. It's one of those many little things that historical scholars will point to as evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. How do you get a mass of humanity, in particular, a mass of Jewish people, to just on a whim switch from Saturday to Sunday? They did it because Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week, on Sunday. And it very early became the day of worship for the people. All of the gospel writers, they make use of the phrase related to the resurrection of Jesus on the first day of the week, on the first day of the week, on the first day of the week, on the first day of the week. In Acts chapter 20, describing the church coming together in Troas, Luke writes, on the first day of the week when they were gathered together to break bread. When Paul was encouraging the Corinthians to give generously to the suffering saints in Jerusalem. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you do also on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collection be made when I come. Apparently, the idea was that on the first day of the week, whenever they gathered, they would, they would put a little bit of money aside so that when Paul came, that collection could just be handed over to him and there wouldn't need to be another collection made. In Revelation chapter 1, Whenever John was on the island of Patmos, he uses this little phrase, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Most interpreters believe he has reference there to the first day of the week, Sunday. That maybe by then it had even become known as the Lord's day. Israel was to keep the Sabbath holy. 
Are we meant to keep Sunday holy? Different opinions on that, and I don't believe I can say to you under the law of Christ, you must keep Sunday holy. Apostle Paul talks about some regard one day above another, others regard all days alike. You seem to bend a little bit day, a little bit here. But I will say, if, if, if you'll allow me, is every day meant to be the same? Is there not something about the first day of the week rising up out of Scripture? Is there not something about the, the church in Acts 20 gathering on the first day of the week? 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of the week. Is there not something there? If we're right about what John says, he was, he was on the island of Patmos. On the Lord's day, this vision came to him. If, if indeed he means on Sunday, is there not something to that? Is there not something to in Hebrews chapter 10, don't neglect coming together to be with one another. In our increasingly post-Christian Western world, right here in America, right here in good old Texas, right here in the Bible Belt, Sunday's just seen as the world sees Sunday. It's just another day. It's just the second half of the weekend. It's, it, it seems to me that maybe we should, as I say here, prioritize the Lord's Day. Sunday is the day that Christians have now for the last 2,000 years, the first day of the week. It's the day where they come together to be with one another, to encourage one another, to hug one another's neck, to, 1 Peter 5, to greet one another with a holy kiss. That's all right. We don't have to do that one. To worship God together, to gather around his word, to hear the preaching of the word, to remember the Lord through the taking of the bread and the cup, to celebrate baptisms together. For 2,000 years now, that's what Christians have been doing. That's what they're doing all over the world. As the sun comes up on Sunday morning and goes all the way around, believers are waking up early in the morning and making their way to their church family. They are the church. They're making their way to the place where their church expression meets. They're not going to church. This is not the church. We are the church. This is just where we happen to meet. Some of y'all know uh, Tim Challies, challies.com, very influential Christian blog. It's great. Well, he's good buddies with some of y'all know Tim Kazee, the missionary that I love. He came a couple years ago. Before Tim Kazee got his cancer, they had plans where they were going to travel the world and they were going to film and, and 
Tim and Tim were going to write about the different expressions of the gathered church, and they were going to travel it as the sun came up all over the world. So they were going to start, forget where they were going to start, because Sunday's the day. Sunday's the day to come and to be with one another. Value the Lord's way, prioritize the Lord's day, and no, we're not going to rhyme for number three. Support the Lord's work. Verse 32, all the way to the end of the chapter. Let me just read it all and make a point. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. That little phrase, house of our God, is going to come up over and over and over again. You remember, whenever, they, whenever the remnant returned from captivity under Zerubbabel, they rebuilt the temple, the house of God. Then Ezra came along and began to rebuild them. Then Nehemiah came along and rebuilt the, pe- the walls around the city. But now that things are settling down, they're saying, we, got, we need to support this thing. Placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the burnt off- continual burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of our God. So this, this support for the work for them included this one-third of a shekel for this variety of things, all the work of the house of our God. In verse 34, likewise we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people so that they might bring it to the house of our God according to our fathers' households at fixed times annually to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. So there were daily sacrifices taking place at the temple And that meant lots of wood being burned upon the altar. And so they said, we need wood. And so they they said, we'll supply it. Verse 35, and that they might bring the first fruits of of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually, to bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons, of our cattle, of the firstborn of our herds, our flocks, as it is written in the law, for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God. We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine, and the oil to the priest at the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites, for the Levites are those who receive the tithe in all the rural towns. The priest, the son of Aaron, shall be, the Le- shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers, and the singers. Thus, we will not neglect the house of our God. So this variety of things around the house of the Lord, the the wood that was needed for the daily offerings, and all of these provisions for the priests and the Levites. Support the work of the Lord. We have no 
strict stipulations of how much to give in the New Testament, but I think along with everybody, it seems, generous giving to the Lord's work in the local church and wherever you might find it is a wonderful thing for the people of God. The local church is dependent upon the sacrificial, generous, joyful giving of God's people. It supports the ministries of our church, the staff of our church, the facilities, the missions, both local and around the world. And you all are so generous. You just are. So thank you so very much for your generosity to the church. If you're new to Redeemer and you, you, you may wonder, how does giving kind of work around here? Once we, we, we used to pass some baskets and COVID hit and, you know, COVID, we don't even do that anymore. Maybe we'll get back to it. Who knows? We have some giving boxes back there. People will, will put their giving in there. A lot of folks do it online. But I want you to know, because some people wonder, Mitch, do you see the giving that comes to Redeemer? The answer to that is no. Nor does Mike, nor does Katie, nor does, I don't even think Sarah on a consistent basis. We have a group of rotating counters of the money. So, no, I don't know. Sometimes I think people wonder, does Mitch know how much I give or how much? I don't know, and I don't want to know. But I sure do appreciate knowing that for the 13 and a half, almost 14 years that I've been here, the sacrificial, generous, joyful giving of Redeemer Community Church has sustained everything that we've done. And would encourage you to continue doing it. And if it's not a part of your discipleship to Jesus, to give generously to the Lord's work, I would encourage you to do it. I heard Andy Stanley say years ago, and I like it, he said, you know, you can think about your giving priority, percentage, progressive, and prompted. Priority. If you're like me, you got to make it a priority. It's got to be the first thing on your budget line of items. Because if you don't make it a priority like that, if you're anything like me, then it just waits till the money all goes elsewhere, and then you say, okay, what do I have left to give to the Lord? Make it a priority. It's, it's, it's in the language of the Bible. It's the first fruits. God, you've entrusted this to me. Off the very top, I want to give to you and your work. My local church, I want to help support my local church. Maybe there's ministries around the city, around the world that you want to support. Make it a priority. Secondly, you make it a percentage. You know, under the Old Testament, we, we often talk about a tithe giving 10%, and so that's, that's become a percentage that a lot of people have used even in the New Testament, New Covenant, under the New Covenant. I'm not so sure that we are commanded to give a tenth as Old Testament Israel was. There are principles, as I've said, of generosity, of joy, that the New Testament points us to. Some would make the point, well, good night. If Old Testament Israel was to give 10 while under the law, 
what about new covenant Christians under grace? Maybe it would be more. But Andy says, make it a priority, make it a percentage. And maybe it is 10%. Maybe, you, you know, maybe you're, you start at three, but maybe over time, progressive. As you trust God and you learn what Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You maybe progress over the years to where you're giving more to missions. You're giving more around the city or you're giving more here at Redeemer. Trusting God and seeing his work through your giving. Make it a priority, make it a percentage, make it progressive, and then prompt it. The idea there is when you hear things that pop up like Ukraine, and the Spirit of God just says, yeah, give to that. You're able to do that with joy. Those were three, it seems to me, areas where they wanted to get specific. Lord, we intend to obey you. But I would just say to you, is there another area of your life, another area of your discipleship to Jesus Christ where you go, Lord, from grace, remember this is coming out of chapter 9, and all of the grace of God and the compassion of God that he had shown towards them, is there any area of your life where you say, oh God, out of the security of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ, out of the love of God that's come my way in Jesus Christ, I want to obey you like this. Maybe it's a particular sin struggle that you, you want to trust him and ask him to help you resist. Or maybe it's, it's something you know God is calling you to do as a husband, as a wife, as a dad, as a mom, as, as a neighbor, as, as someone here, as a member at Redeemer Community Church. You just know that God's been putting something on your heart to do, but you haven't been doing it for whatever reasons. And maybe you say, God, from the grace of God that comes through Jesus. And the security that I have in your love and the power of your Holy Spirit in my life, I'm going to take steps to do that. They intended to obey the Lord. Do you intend to obey Him? Maybe it's your mouth. <laughs> words that come out of your mouth. Maybe it's curse words. It's foul language. You do good at home. You do good on Sunday morning. But boy, don't catch me on Monday at work. Maybe it's just a, it's a foul mouth that you know the Lord wants to clean up. Or maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's boasting. Maybe it's, maybe it's your mouth. Maybe it's, maybe it's Monday. And what I mean by that is after, after Sunday comes Monday. 
And maybe you're just under conviction of the Lord that, you know what? When I show up on Monday, my life does not match my confession to be a follower of Jesus. Maybe it's your marriage. Husbands, maybe you just know you're not loving your wife as Christ loved the church. And you got 42 reasons why you're justified in not loving your wife as Christ loved the church. I mean, you can just name them. But still you've got the word of God saying to you, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wife, maybe you're not respecting and following the leadership of your husband the way you just know Christ is calling you to. And you've got 37 reasons why you shouldn't. But maybe you see this kind of resolve coming from these folks, and they said, you know what, I, because of the grace of God, we want to obey him. Lord, would you help me to, to respect my husband and follow his leadership and, and love him? God, would you help me as a husband to love my wife as you, Christ, have loved me? Maybe it's money. Maybe you haven't been obeying the Lord in, in the stewardship of what he's entrusted to you. Maybe it's ministry. You just know that God is calling you in ministry here at Redeemer or maybe right there in your neighborhood. You're just surrounded by lost people. Maybe it's at your workplace, wherever it might be, and, and, and Jesus is calling you to serve him and to serve the gospel. And maybe you would just say, Lord, out of grace, I don't have to earn your love. I have that in Jesus. But the grace that's come my way is meant to, to show itself in good works. Would you help me? Intend to obey. Let's pray. Father, I, right now, just I think of Titus chapter 2 that we await a Savior who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good works zealous to put the word of God into action in their lives. Because, and it started up in verse 10, the grace of God has appeared. Because the grace of God has come our way in Jesus, we are zealous for good deeds. It seems Israel was here. We want to value the Lord's way. We want to prioritize the Lord's day. We want to support his work Lord, give us a zeal, born of the grace of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, a zeal to obey you. 
in all the areas of our life. And as we do, we thank you for the gospel. Because we, even as we res- resolve to obey, we know that stumbling and fumbling is coming. We will not be perfect in our righteousness, not in this life. But we thank you for the gospel, the good news that in Jesus Christ we are forgiven. We are safe and secure in your love. And so as we stumble into sin, even time and time again, we can keep going to you, confessing our sins, repenting, getting up and going again, and falling down and confessing, repenting, and getting up and going again because of the great compassion of our God who will never, ever let us go. We need your help, Lord. I pray for any husbands here not loving their wives. Might you convict them and empower them and encourage them. Pray for wives who might not be respecting and following the leadership of their husbands, that you would convict them and lead them to repentance and there might be love and joy and peace in the midst of the marriage. I pray for other acts of obedience that you might be leading us to. Lord, help us to trust you and go for it in obedience. I pray for all the temptations that come our way, the sins that so easily entangle us. Lord, would you help us? Help us to turn away from them in the power of the Spirit. Turn to what is good and right and noble, Christ-like. Lord, as we dismiss here in a moment and scatter about the city, Would you fill us with your spirit? Help us to follow Jesus joyfully and faithfully. Help us be a blessing wherever we go. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.